Our next passage from uh, the messages on the, from the Messiah is Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And if, and if I were Handel and I were writing the Messiah, uh, I, I would be tempted to maybe have it in a minor key or something like that, because um, there there's a sour note to this text, which we shall um, see if I can actually get to Malachi. All right. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we think on these things, we ask that you would grant understanding so that we would have a a greater understanding of what Jesus has done, uh, what Jesus is doing, and that we would entrust ourselves to him by faith. Uh, That you would be granting us that faith to believe that what this says is true and matters, and that it requires our attention, our discernment, and our action. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The phrase is, uh, I'm sure you've heard, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. And Mike Rowe has made a very good living off of talking about some of those dirty jobs that someone has to do. There are all kinds of things that uh, if we chose a profession, we would not choose to do that because we find it to be, well, a dirty job. How many of us want to be garbage men? It's easier now when you you have the mechanical arm that just picks up the garbage can and tosses it in, but I still remember, you know, in my childhood, those guys out there picking up those metal garbage cans and tossing it in there, and inevitably they would go home, and they probably didn't smell too nice for their wives. The person who has to clear the sore that's clogged, sometimes you have to go in and do this. And so, uh, amazingly, there are so many dirty jobs uh, that Micro has spent season upon season upon season of shows telling you about these dirty jobs, and he's loving every minute of it. Well, the Messiah, uh, though glorious, unexpectedly, I believe, does a dirty job or two, which Malachi points us to in the course of this text. And so let's 
Let's build with uh, some questions that I pose to Malachi. And the first of these questions that I pose to Malachi is, uh, for whom does the messenger prepare the way? Uh, Malachi, who here is prophesying after the exile, is alluding to Isaiah 40, which we looked at already. This idea of the forerunner, the harbinger, uh, the one who is to come, the one who's going to prepare the way. And, but Malachi is not focused on that person. Malachi is more focused on the one he's preparing the way for. Uh, that is really the bulk of what goes on here. There's a sense in which if, if people were expecting Isaiah 40, to be fulfilled with the Cyrus Edict. Something has gone wrong, and there has been what my old professor Richard Pratt uh, used to say, a punt. Uh, that God's promise was, in a sense, uh, put forward in time further than people expected it to be. Uh, and part of this is that you know, God's people are back in the land. Uh, there's a, now there's a temple that's been built, but there's still something not quite right in Israel, for Israel. And so Malachi declares uh, that he will prepare the way before me, and the question is, who is me? The me to which Malachi is referring and of course, the speaker of this, as we see in this text, is the one who declares himself the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. Yahweh of armies. The one who stands at the front of all of these armies. It's God himself. Uh, that's in view here. The, the messenger, the harbor drinker, comes to prepare the way for God himself to arrive. Because God himself was coming. And the people needed to know this, and they needed to prepare beforehand. And that's where that whole message of repentance we talked about from Isaiah 40 comes into play. But we see it sort of in a similar way in Isaiah 1. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so uh, God is reasoning with his people in Isaiah, and there's a sense in which he's going to be reasoning with his people as he appears to them uh, through this one who's, who's preparing the way, but also when he arrives. Now, part of what's interesting is that the next sentence has to do with this uh, a parallel text. Okay, And so... Uh, the me is further described, is another way of putting this. And the me is the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, if you look at your English Bibles, you'll recognize that it's capital L, but all the rest are lowercase letters. They're not small capital letters. It's different from Yahweh or, or Jehovah, the Lord. It's a different word. In the Hebrew, it's, you know, doesn't matter. It's Adonai, okay, which means master. And so uh, they're 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 looking for they're they're seeking a master. And God says that the master that you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
In other words, uh, the long-awaited Messiah that they were anticipating, the one they were seeking, is not simply a great teacher. This person is, is not simply a, a dignitary that shows up. He's not an ordinary prophet, priest, or king. What's fascinating to me is that it talks about his temple. Now, this could be taken in one of two ways. It, similarly, uh, you know, we talk about Solomon's temple, and in other places we talk about things like, for instance, Diana's temple in Ephesus. There's a lot of problems with Diana's temple. In the first sense of Solomon's temple, it doesn't belong to Solomon, but Solomon was the one who built it. Solomon isn't worshipped there. Solomon's just the one who built it so other people can worship there, but it's referred to as Solomon's temple. In the case of Diana, it's not that she built it because, well, she doesn't exist, but, <laughs> but it was a temple that was built for her to, for her to be worshipped in. Okay? This person is not being spoken of as the one who built it. But the one who is worshipped there, who, one who is intended to be worshipped there, is going to suddenly or unexpectedly arrive at that temple, that place of worship. It's the reality that the one worshipped arrives, but he arrives for a reason. And that reason is that in Ezekiel 10, we have the prophecy of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple as part of the judgment upon God's people in the Babylonian exile. Ezekiel, in the spirit, is brought to Jerusalem and he sees the glory of the Lord arise from above the cherubim and to leave the temple and to go out the east gate. The problem with what, with the temple in Malachi's day was that the glory had not yet returned. If we go to Chronicles and we see when Solomon dedicated the temple, the, the, the temple was filled with smoke, this incredible cloud, the glory of the presence of the Lord was there. That hadn't happened for this new temple that they've built. And Malachi is saying, the glory is going to come back. It's going to come back suddenly. It's going to come back unexpectedly. But we have a little bit of a, a head-scratcher here in some sense. That's part of why I had uh, Rick read Psalm 110, which is the most quoted passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And there we see that very first sentence. Yahweh spoke to my Adonai. Now, David, who Jesus said is the author of this psalm, never had a master. Uh, well, okay, yeah, he served Saul. That's not what this is talking about. Israel during the reign of David was, was not a vassal kingdom. David is seeing God speak to his own master or Lord. Great mystery about this. And it's a, it's a mystery that Jesus used to stump the teachers of Israel. He brought up this text. 
They wanted to know by what authority he did X, Y, and Z, why he taught what he taught. And he said, well, answer me this question. How can he be David's son and yet David's Lord? And the answer to the question is that he is God in the flesh, which is how the New Testament frequently uses this passage. This king is the greater David, even though he's the son of David. But here's another part of that head-scratcher. The way is prepared for him, but the appearance is sudden or unexpected. Think about that for a second. If there's, if there's someone saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, why aren't you expecting him coming? I guess maybe one of the best ways I can think of this is uh, something that happened after I graduated from college, staying at my parents' house, and uh, they had left for the day. And I was spending some time with some friends, and um, it was a hot summer day, and so somehow we ended up deciding to have a water fight. Okay, nothing, nothing dangerous, you know. There's no, it wasn't a kegger. You know, there's no drugs or anything like that. We're just a bunch of silly Christian young adults having some some good, clean fun. That of course inevitably gets out of hand uh, as people are fighting for sources of water. Some found themselves me uh, in the in the kitchen and then someone deciding to spray the hose by the kitchen. So water gets into the house a little bit. But, you know, we have time to clean it up. Except that you're dealing with my parents, who like to show up unexpectedly. So hours before I expect them to show up, even though I know they're going to show up, I don't, I'm caught in the act, so to speak, as opposed to in the midst of... Oh, after having cleaned up the mess that we've made. The people sort of knew Messiah's coming, and yet when he actually does come, it's unexpected. And so we see that John prepared the way in the wilderness for Jesus to come to his own temple as Messiah. And so God himself came to the temple in Jesus. So... Well, why does the Lord come? That's an important question. We have this continued parallelism that instructs us more and more about the nature of the me, who this person is, but he is a messenger, the messenger rather, of the covenant. The messenger of the covenant is coming, and this, this aspect of the messenger of the covenant can have two dimensions to it. And, um, one of those two dimensions is that the Messiah comes to bring about the sanctions of the covenant. In other words, judgment. We see this uh, spoken of by Malachi. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Okay. You don't say that when someone comes bearing lots of gifts for you. I can't stand it. This is the difficult reality of judgment. There is an element of which the the Messiah comes to bring judgment. 
rhetorically? The answer is intended to be no, uh, understood no. No one can stand before Messiah precisely because all are guilty. None are righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who does good. No, not one. Guilty of idolatry, the worship of false gods. The worshiping of the true God in a false way. Meaning, going through the motions or doing it in ways that he has prohibited us to do. Sabbath-breaking, parent-dishonoring, hating, stealing, cheating, all of these are things uh, that all people are guilty of. We see this element of judgment in the passage we read from Matthew 3 with the message of John the baptizer. He spoke of the axe being at the root of the tree. And if the axe is at the root of the tree, it's not a good thing for the tree. The tree is being taken down to be destroyed. He speaks as well as the winnower's fork. Hard work, a dirty job tossing uh, the, the, the grain in the air so that the chaff uh, blows off in the wind, separating wheat from chaff. Hard work, but a picture of judgment. Now, this initial uh, judgment is upon the house of Israel, and we see this reflected in a way in 1 Peter chapter 4, for it is time to begin uh, sorry, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so there's a sense in which we're not completely passed over. The visible church, the visible community of God is the first place where the separation takes place. And we see John the Baptist warning the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. Uh, who warned you that Jesus was coming? Well, not Jesus, but he didn't say that. But he meant that the Messiah is coming, that judgment is coming. Who warned you? Why are you flee the wrath that is about to descend? So, the first advent begins the dirty job of separating wheat and chaff as people respond to the Messiah who actually comes. And we have to recognize that Jesus, as the gospel portrays him anyway, uh, not as he's often portrayed in popular literature or whatever, but Jesus, as he's portrayed in the gospels, is a polarizing figure. He is either loved or hated. He's more polarizing uh, than the polarizing figures of our own day and culture. But here's the real rub. If you like the wrong polarizing figure, you might experience temporary and social consequences. Uh, but the consequences of, of loving or not loving Jesus are eternal. Their life, their death. And so he is unlike any polarizing figure you can imagine. There will be those who, because they hate him, will also hate those who love Jesus. I was reading the, um, the thoughts of John Newton on the letter of, of Pliny to the Emperor Trajan. 
And he's kind of wondering, he was a proconsul, okay, like Pilate, except uh, he was a proconsul of Bithynia, which is one of the cities where Paul ended up going uh, in his, one of his missionary journeys. But anyway, this is years later, okay, after, long after Paul has been there, and um, he's writing about the persecution of the Christians. And he's, he's fully engaged in it, but there's a sense in which he doesn't know why he's fully engaged in it. Because these people are not doing anything wrong aside from worshiping the wrong God. They're, they're not, you know, adulterers and thieves and murderers. They're not criminals. They're just refusing to worship Caesar. And so you sense there's a struggle there. And I, as I was reading this, I was just reminded of what's going on in China. These, the people that they're imprisoning are not doing anything wrong. It's just that they're worshiping a god that their state doesn't want them to worship. And so they find themselves in prison camps being tortured. Why? Well, because they hate the real Jesus. So I remind you that uh, those people who may want to kill you cannot compare to the Jesus who was killed for you. I want you to take your eyes off the ones who killed the body and place them upon the one who died in the body to restore your soul. This can be difficult to do at times because we don't often realize we need to do it. Saturday... No, not Saturday, Friday. Jaden had been using my computer for a while, uh, you know, the last year or so. And so I had reduced computer usage at home. And now she's got her own computer, so I, I, I'm having to regain a balance. Okay, I spent too much time online on Friday. And too much of that time was in Facebook conversations, which I probably shouldn't have been in because they drove me crazy. But... I felt accusations and venom, insults, uh, in a variety of conversations. It wasn't one conversation. There was a couple of different conversations going on. And I really didn't know how it affected me until I took my walk. And I, I was going to skip over what I had, was next on my iPod. And that was the Indelible Grace hymn sing from a few years ago. It was such a balm to my soul. I didn't realize how, how uh, overwhelmed my soul had been with the conversation of that day. And I just, it was life-giving to me to hear the gospel in song and um, refreshing. And so often, that's the point, we don't realize how desperately we need it. But we need to look to Jesus. We need sometimes some songs to speak of Jesus to us so that we remember what he has done for us as opposed to what others want to do to us. Now, the second way that he's a mediator of the covenant, I'm sorry, a messenger of the covenant, is that he is the mediator of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sin. He does the dirty job of dying for our sin. 
Oh, we see this in places like Hebrews 9. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus dies to redeem his people from their transgressions, their sins. We see similarly in Hebrews 12, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you remember Cain and Abel, Abel was pretending that nothing, he didn't know where, Sorry, Cain was pretending that he didn't know where Abel was. And God says that his blood cried out. Cried out for justice. Cried out for for vengeance against Cain. Uh, But here we have the blood of Jesus which speaks not of vengeance and justice, but of justice satisfied, of forgiveness, of peace, of restoration, of reconciliation. So the blood of Jesus speaks uh, these words, these tender words to us, if we but listen. He speaks not of your guilt, but of your pardon. And so Jesus came to His temple, shall I say, to bring a new covenant. A covenant which is signed and sealed in His own blood as opposed to the blood of a bull or a goat. Well, what is the nature of Jesus' work? Uh, Dirty work. The dirty job. Jesus is not simply the Redeemer, but Malachi says that he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now, it's kind of weird. He's like fire. He's like soap. He's an active ingredient or active agent in a process He's like the fire and the soap that is used to remove the dross from metal and the stains or filth from wool. Malachi points to the reality that we are corrupt in our nature and that our sins will leave a stain upon our soul. In the first of these two pictures, you have a precious metal, and he talks about silver and gold and You've got a valuable thing. But part of the problem is is that there's other stuff mixed up in there, what we call the dross. And so it needs to be heated by a fire so that the dross comes to the... so the, the metal melts and all the gunk comes to the surface and can be wiped away, leaving you with more pure silver or more pure gold or whatever metal that you're working with. You're getting rid of the impurities that are, that are found within this lump of metal. The other picture, of course, is that of the, of the fuller. And most of us have never heard of the fuller, aside from the fuller brush, from a conversation I had last night. That's not about the fuller brush. It's about wool. Freshly shorn wool. But where has that wool been for the previous year? It's been on a sheep. And where has the sheep been? Out in the fields. And so when you shear the sheep, what you have is wool that it has all kinds of gunk in it. There's sticks. There's grass. There's dirt. There's poop. All kinds of nasty things are, are 
just in the middle. It's not on the surface. It's like all within it. And so what they would do is they would um, put soap in this in this big bucket. It's almost like stomping on grapes to make wine, uh, but you're stomping on wool. So they put they put the wool in there and they put the the soap in there and the fuller jumps in and he just stomps on it to try and get it clean. And it's uh, as we'll see, it's one of the dirtiest jobs of the ancient Near East. Okay. But there's something, there's impurity that must be removed. And Jesus is the one who removes it. We see pictures of this in places like Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Well, Jesus doesn't use hyssop. He doesn't use fuller's soap. He's like the fuller's soap. He removes them by the covenant blood that He shed for us. As the song goes, there is power, power wonder-working power and the precious blood of the Lamb. This power is not limited to forgiveness. It includes that, but it's not limited to that. It includes cleansing from sin's stain. We see this in 1 John in verses 7 and 9. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Parallel in verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive ourselves, uh, forgive our sins, there's the pardon, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, there's the purification. He purifies us to make us holy and blameless in His sight. It's not just positional as we speak about in terms of justification. It's also personal or real as we talk about in sanctification. Uh, that when Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, he's talking about so that we will be. I believe he's talking about the personal blamelessness and holiness of his people. He will sit as a refiner, Malachi says, and a purifier of silver. Jesus is the one who works to remove our sin. Jesus is fully invested in what happens here. And both of these are dirty jobs. Okay, He's not just like the fire, but He's also the refiner. And imagine that for a moment. You have to sit by a fire. You get hot. You get sweaty. But not only that, because of the wood that's burned or other fuel that's burned, you're going to get sooty. And so you're dealing with smoke in your eyes. You're dealing with soot all over your body. You're sweating everywhere. And you're, because you're, you know, you're right by the fire because you've got to continually watch it and occasionally remove the dross from the top of the melted metal. You don't look pretty and ready to go out for a nice meal with your spouse 
or your girlfriend or your boyfriend when you're done refining metal. In the same way, you've got, if you're a fuller and you're running around and stomping in that barrel, this filthy water is splashing up all over you. You probably smell bad. Two very dirty jobs, but these are pictures of what Jesus does for us. We see in justification the pardon of sin as well as what we call the imputation of righteousness. He gives us His own righteousness as if it was our own. And in sanctification, we see Him purifying us and imparting righteousness to us so that we actually do become righteous in increasing measure. This is reflected in the shorter catechism answer to question 35. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. You don't earn it. It's grace. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Jesus changes us in sanctification. We don't change ourselves and sanctification. This continues to be the work of God to purify us. What's interesting is that in both of these two pictures that he gives, you start with something that's valuable. Silver, wool. But this dirty job is intended to make them more valuable. If your silver or gold is more pure... Uh, then what you have is more valuable because someone doesn't have to do that work of refining it. If you have clean, good-looking wool, it's more valuable than if I just you know, brought freshly shorn wool and dumped it on the counter for you to buy because you don't have to now do that hard work of making it look good so that you can make it into a blanket or a jacket or a robe. Taking something valuable and making it more valuable. Jesus finds us valuable. We're his treasured possession. And yet he's going to make us more valuable. He's going to instill glory into us through remaking us in his own image. Not quite done. Malachi mentions that he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. We've, we've seen the refining part, the gold and the silver already, but I just want to catch that idea. He's, who is he going to purify specifically? The sons of Levi. What was their job? To help purify the people of God. They themselves needed to be purified. And if they needed to be purified how much more the rest of God's people needed to be purified. And so, this should remind us, no one is exempt. All of God's people need to be purified by Jesus. Even the ones that help you be purified. Those who refuse the refiner's fire choose the fire of God's judgment. 
That is a reality that I cannot leave this text without saying. There is the reality that that John the baptizer spoke of, that coming wrath, that lake of fire that we see in Revelation 20, that those who refuse to be pardoned and purified will experience. And it's a dreadful thing. As he does the dirty work of redemption, he simultaneously does the dirty work of judgment. And so we see that Jesus came to purify a people for Himself. And if we're to take these three strands and kind of wrap them up together as a big idea, we see that Jesus came to do the dirty work of pardoning and purifying His people. And if you're one of His people, you have been pardoned, and you should be longing to be purified. If you have no longing to be purified, you probably ought to wonder if you're one of his people. But dirty jobs have to be done. Someone has to haul the garbage away. Someone has to clear the clogged sore line. And we see the incarnate Son who is revealed as the Lord of armies, who is revealed as the Master or Adonai, the glorious one, humbling himself to do the dirty work. The dirty work of redemption, the pardoning and purifying of his people. And and this involves a messy death. He wasn't just lying on a table to get a lethal injection, but we see the messiness, the shame, the horrific nature of his death. And then getting involved in the mess that is our lives. Jesus is not turned off by the dirty work necessary, but He values us and He has a vision for a glorious future for us. This is the Messiah that comes for His people. Is that the Messiah you receive? Do you receive that dirty work done for you? Or are you still trying to do that dirty work all for yourself? Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that since we are by nature so prone to rash judgment, that we may learn to submit to you and so quietly accept your judgments, that we may patiently bear whatever chastisements you may allot to us as you refine us, And no doubt that it is all done for our well-being so that we don't murmur against you, but rather give you glory in the midst of our adversities and afflictions. May we labor to mortify our flesh that by denying ourselves we may confess you are the only true God, that you are our Father, and that in denying ourselves we may not Depart from the purity of your word, but remain under your yoke until we attain that liberty which has been procured for us by your only begotten Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.